I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Hello, Miriam, good to see you too. I'm excited for our discussion with Anima today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Anima is uh, obviously absolutely brilliant and has a really unique role being both a professor and a senior executive and um, thought leader at a major technology company, NVIDIA. And I'm so curious to hear how she, from those two perches, sees the world and, and navigates the challenges and opportunities that both of those areas offer. I agree. Hearing her unique perspective as someone who's been in this space for quite some time, who's uh, watched AI become uh, a hot topic from where it was originally not one, uh, and now watching her become a leader in this space of responsible, trustworthy AI, uh, watching the evolution and becoming a a spokesperson for diversity as well, uh, will all be very interesting areas to talk with her about. Yeah, let's see what she has to say. Let's do it. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Anima Anand Kumar to our episode of In AI We Trust. Anima is an accomplished AI researcher, to say the least, in both academia and in industry. She is the Bren Professor at Caltech CMS Department, as well as the Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA. Her research explores both theoretical and practical aspects of large-scale machine learning, including unsupervised AI, deep learning, optimization and tensor methods. At Caltech, Anima is the co-director of the Center for Decision-Making, Optimization, and Learning, and is on the Scientific Advisory Committee for the Center for Autonomous Systems and Technologies. She has worked to democratize AI, promote its ethical use, and improve diversity and inclusion in AI, all things we very much look forward to exploring on our show today. For that work, she was awarded the Good Tech Award in 2018 by the New York Times. She was previously principal scientist at Amazon Web Service, where she enabled machine learning on the cloud infrastructure, and is the recipient of numerous awards. It would probably take the rest of the show to go through, but she has an IEEE Fellowship, the Alfred P. Sloan Fellowship, uh, fellowships on faculty from Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Adobe, on and on. Uh, But we're looking forward to jumping in and talking to you today. So I will cut that short and just say thank you, Anima, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Miriam. It's been a pleasure. Uh, And uh, I really admire the work uh, you're doing and uh, promoting trustworthy AI. I think this is so important as we see AI take its place uh, in so many domains and applications. Well, thank you for those kind words. And we're really excited to talk to someone who's been at the forefront of this movement for a while. You are not new to AI and you're not new to the space of responsible, trustworthy AI. We wanna learn, how did you first come to this space? Where did you first start getting involved in AI and machine learning? And, and how did the role of responsible, trustworthy AI become such a passion for you? Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, I've been in AI for a long time now. You know, when I started my grad school, right, AI had none of the hype or glamour that it's associated with uh, today. Uh, You know, there was a lot of very intriguing uh, foundations in terms of, you know, how do we model uncertainty, right? Like how can we uh, think of statistical concepts to process data and what impact it has on information. And that I've been fascinated since high school. 
And when I started my grad school, um, I worked on wireless sensor networks in my first project. So how do we take information from lots of different sensors and fuse them, you know, save energy, uh, monitor all kinds of phenomena. So it involved multiple fields uh, coming together, um, you know, uh, machine learning, uh, but also wireless communication, thinking about these edge devices. You know, back then we didn't even have the term internet of things, but that's where we are today with edge AI and um, Internet of Things and the smart everything revolution. So it's been a great journey to see AI move from uh, strong foundation and theoretical realms to much more practical and real world applications. And for me to be part of that journey and right, uh, my research has also evolved over these years to uh, take into account how we can scale up AI to lots of applications and at the same time, when AI is no longer a theoretical concept, how do we now think about the societal impacts? Because for the longest time when AI was mostly an academic topic, right? Uh, you know, people thought, okay, one day <laughs> we can think of worry about it when it gets deployed in the real world. And that happened so quickly. Uh, you know, like uh, we've been uh, talking about uh, machine learning in conferences and then all of a sudden there is the imaginative challenge uh, that gets beaten by neural networks and then we see all industries investing in AI, growing uh, research labs at such a fast pace, uh, building um, cloud AI applications. I was really uh, privileged to be one of the first to join the AWS team to help build cloud AI. And so that journey happened so fast that I think in the beginning, it was hard to grapple what could be the real world impacts. Um, and I, I really want to credit, um, you know, a lot of researchers in the area of uh, ethical AI, especially uh, black female researchers like Timnit Gebro, Joy Bolomweni, Deb Raji, you know, who really brought out the awareness in terms of uh, how um, badly trained AI, how public data sets we have are so heavily imbalanced uh, that these are not suited for real world applications. So we need to work harder. And since then, I think there's been a lot more awareness, but this is a, a process of uh, continuous improvement, right? So we are still in the infancy of creating responsible AI. Thanks, Anima. And we're going to spend almost all of the show uh, diving further into these questions around responsible and ethical AI. But before we do, because you have such a history in, 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 in development of the AI itself, I'd love to just hear your views on why it is that AI has accelerated so profoundly in the last five to 10 years. Uh, you've you've talked before uh, about a, a trinity uh, that has facilitated the expansion of AI. So perhaps you can just walk us through that. And then what you see as the state of play in terms of the adoption of AI right now across industry sectors and, 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 and use cases. And then we'll dive into all of the issues that arise through that. But just to, to level set us for a moment here. Absolutely. And you know, to a lot of uh, us, right, it appears this is magical. Like, how did AI so quickly go from theoretical concepts to practical applications? 
And, um, you know, what I like to point out is this trinity of AI, right? So it wasn't just the neural network algorithms as amazing as they are, but what you needed to power these algorithms is data, right? You needed lots of um, label data, uh, and that's what the ImageNet challenge created for the first time, this availability of data sets for all researchers to use. And the third one is um, the GPUs. So having highly optimized primitives for doing computations on neural networks, you know, these matrix operations and uh, being able to put all these three together. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of development in the internet revolution, right? That's what created web scale data. Um, and that's what drove uh, also the adoption of GPUs uh, from graphics processing to high performance computing. Um, so there was a lot brewing, but we hadn't connected the dots. Uh, you know, we hadn't figured out how to make this also scale for machine learning, uh, especially neural networks, uh, because, uh, you know, during the AI winters in 1980s, when there wasn't enough data, when there wasn't enough computing, neural networks failed to live up to the promise, right? Uh, uh, they performed poorly compared to hand-engineered features because you just didn't have enough data. So we had to break through that barrier of scale uh, to get us to the practical impact of deep learning, which also makes, you know, shows the challenges involved in many real world applications, right? You may not have large label data sets uh, in many domains. So how do you then use the deep learning or other related concepts and uh, get the best use now we are seeing uh, developments in self-supervised learning. So how do we do without supervision? Can we create our own supervision as we train these networks? Um, no, infants uh, have no supervision, right? In their first year of their lives, they're just observing the world around and learning the representations. So can we have um, machines as well do the same? So these are the kinds of problems we are getting into in the research realm. Uh, and also quickly moving them into practice. So now, you know, the uh, timeline between research and practice is really shortened and sometimes completely integrated, right? Because so much has to do with uh, data. Uh, so you're, you're now uh, creating better models, better algorithms for specific applications and specific data sets. You have to kind of all do that together. Um, so that's what uh, is exciting because now the you know, academic side and the industrial side have to be integrated, right? So it's not just a matter of building large-scale applications without worrying about AI algorithms either. We need to innovate uh, on better AI for unsupervised learning, for edge AI where you, know, you may not be able to have big, large models and a lot of uh, battery power or a lot of bandwidth Right, so all these new applications create new challenges for AI. Well, and it's so interesting to hear your perspective when you talk about the intersection of industry and academia, since that is where you live. And I'm sure it presents many opportunities to learn from either perspective. I'm sure it presents some conflicts um, in ways that you wish academia would learn from private sector and, and vice versa. I'm curious if there are any tactics, uh, procedures, processes you've learned from either side that you've helped incorporate into the other domain that we could all learn from. So as you're building these really impressive AI systems, have you learned 
uh, tactics on how to identify and reduce bias and other harms from either side that you've helped uh, become standardized uh, through the uh, both both lenses. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. Uh, and I feel really privileged to be on both the sides and find uh, ways to build bridges and collaborations that benefits ultimately humanity, right? So, and what we usually do in academia is to focus on the foundations, right? What are the fundamental principles here? Can we you know, model first, let's say, a toy example to completely understand and then try to, you know, progressively make it more complicated, right? So that's one side of the spectrum. The other side with industry is, you know, we have the data, so let's just try out, let's try out hands-on different kinds of approaches. uh, And uh, as we go along, we'll figure out how to, right, modify or uh, do something better. Um, and uh, to also have uh, engineers and the scale, we have computing, so that's not a bottleneck, you know, in terms of uh, how much uh, scale we need. Whereas academia is still, uh, you know, even in the best of universities, having not having enough computing power, right? So there is a big divide on that. And I think uh, for the future of uh, open AI research and uh, um when I say open AI, I mean AI that is open, not open AI. Uh, so, uh, and uh, especially in issues around bias and uh, fairness, that's where research in academia is grappling with this problem because, you know, we are so used to having proofs and guarantees, right? We want a firm foundation, you know, in physics, you know, we had love, Newton's laws of motion and then we said, no, this is not accurate enough. So let's go to now quantum realm, let's go to theory of uh, relativity. And so we are progressively refining, but coming up with strong, you know, uh, theories. Whereas uh, with neural networks, it's messier. Uh, You know, it's more like I would, you know, relate that to biology rather than physics or chemistry, right? In the sense, you know, our human body, we can have certain models, but all models are wrong. And ultimately, Right. If you want to do drug trials, at some point you have to get to human trials. You know, you can do a lot of others, but so many fail at the human trials because we uh, have just not able to model the complexity of it. So I would compare neural networks now the modern day, very large scale ones, more akin to biological mechanisms that can't be modeled very accurately. So you have to try out. You have to actually run the experiments it's uh, you know many times even i'm surprised uh, with the results uh, of many of these large scale experiments it's very hard to you know always uh, hypothesize what the outcome is and i think a good industry academia collaboration will be one where you know we can build some of the foundations in terms of what would be good neural network models and then you know, use the help from industry to scale up to practical applications. So I can quickly give you one successful such uh, initiative that we have undertaken recently, uh, and that's to model and learn on partial differential equations. You know, like traditionally, if you want to solve for climate change or fluid turbulence, right, this requires supercomputing capabilities because uh, solving them is so complicated. On the other hand, uh, if we want to use the power of AI to speed up such computations, how can we do that in a robust way so that we can solve 
all kinds of conditions, uh, you know, that say for uh, climate uh, prediction that you would be encountering. And so we built a foundation where we said standard neural networks are not going to be enough to capture such complex phenomena. Uh, we built a new foundation where we could theoretically prove this can universally approximate uh, operators that map between infinite dimensional spaces, because that's how we model uh, partial differential equations, because it can be any arbitrary continuous inputs and continuous outputs. So that was the foundational piece. But to make that scale up, you know, we realized Fourier transform is very effective and fast and uh, being able to have efficient code and, uh, uh, you know, the power of GPUs makes it so convenient to uh, look at uh, its performance. And for the first time, we can solve Navier-Stokes uh, uh, with good fidelity, uh, comparable to traditional methods, but have thousands of times of speed ups. So, so that's the benefit that you know, we need some foundations whenever we can build that uh, in theory, but also enough of the practical scaling to show its real world impact. That's a great example, and I think a really thoughtful answer about what the respective roles could be and should be of academia and industry. And I want to just build on that um, that that dynamic. And uh, as Miriam says, you have this very interesting role right at the intersection of the two. And I'm curious what your answer to that would be on the question of AI ethics and AI and responsible AI. So, you know, what should the respective roles be of universities who are training undergraduates and graduates and um, able to do some of that foundational work and then industry who are doing that application work and taking those foundations and elaborating them for particular use cases or issue areas. So. You know, what's the state of play and, 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 and what would the best case scenario look like here? Yeah, I think uh, academia, you know, is already starting to play an important role, right? Uh, first of all, I think every undergraduate, whether, you know, they're doing AI or not, should be taught a course on ethics, should be you know, thinking about societal responsibilities, and then specifically how AI plays into this ethical uh, problems and issues, right? At Caltech, you know, we do have a course on ethics. I think every university should uh, think about incorporating such a course and to also think about, you know, a Hippocratic oath, like doctors, uh, you know, take such an oath. I think it's time that AI engineers and researchers also have one. And, and I think, you know, the value of building such a foundation for ethics means, you know, we are getting everybody to be part of this equation, right? Uh, because it's very easy for engineers to say, oh, I have one tool, I'm writing this one piece of code, right? So I'm not responsible, you know, like uh, the people who use it in the end application, uh, they are answerable. Uh, but I think in a way we are all responsible in uh, driving good outcomes, right? In uh, making sure uh, that there is, accountability and uh, there are enough, the right kind of regulations to prevent misuse of AI. And so academia, I think, can play a very important role, but it cannot be done in isolation because all the big models data is all with industry. So we have to have partnerships, but we also have to have the government place the right amount of regulation and independent bodies 
that can test the models, right? I think that's where academia can play a good role um, when it comes to testing, which is not at um, a mature field. I have so many questions about what you just said. I really want to follow up on your thoughts on government regulation and where you think government can be supportive of your work, both in academia and in industry. I'm also so curious that you're seeing the next gen of engineers and computer scientists that are starting to get some of the ethical research. At the same time, you're dealing with uh, so many in industry who have not had that exposure. Uh, so I apologize. I have two very different, distinct questions, um, but I'm curious. Is it impactful? Is it working? Are you finding that the students who are studying ethics are better equipped? Are there certain questions that you're uh, seeing them ask in their work and that it's where it's sticking? Uh, is there something we can all learn from that um, based on what you're seeing in industry? And separately, if you don't mind, I'd also love to follow through on that thought of, of what government regulation should look like in this space. Yeah, those are great questions, Miriam. I think uh, this is all something we are... <laughs> continuously learning, right? Because we are trying to figure out, you know, what should be the appropriate syllabus and uh, what should be the kinds of, uh, right, uh, thought process we want to invoke in students. Um, I think, uh, you know, we certainly don't want to just limit it to students, right? Uh, ideally, we want uh, uh, everybody to continuously learn. I mean, that's going to be the future. It's not going to be that learning stops and you just have one skill and you go ahead. The future of jobs is continuously changing. And so I think with that, uh, educating ethics to everybody, you know, the general public is so important. Uh, and that's where the work you're doing is uh, so important to raise that awareness. And, and that's what gives me a lot of hope because in just the last few years, we've seen that uh, tremendously improve, you know, in the, even amongst uh, some of well-known researchers, right, the, the earlier public would state, oh, I don't get this uh, area of ethical AI research, or I don't think this is needed, right, so, and that has changed, right, so today you would not probably hear any top researchers uh, make such a statement, so how quickly our minds and hearts have changed because we see the real world uh, impact of this, um, you know, thanks to uh, the tireless efforts of Timnit, uh, Gebru, Joy, and many others. Uh, we've seen that uh, the Congress is, uh, you know, taking notice, uh, government bodies are taking notice. Um, when it comes to accidents, uh, you know, Tesla or other, right, uh, incidents uh, with uh, self-driving cars, it's clear that, um, more checks and balances are needed and you cannot just bring them out to the real world. And so a lot of this, I think, is a natural process of evolution because, uh, you know, we are starting to see some of the ill effects even, even from, you know, very simple applications of AI. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, banning the use of face recognition by law enforcement um, until enough checks and balances are employed, I think is very important uh, because that can be a life and death situation. If you're doing this in real time on a body cam and you're uh, especially having models that are biased and uh, we need to be very careful about that. So I think a lot of it is contextual and application focused, right? So uh, face recognition in other benign applications like uh, 
you know, face ID on my phone maybe is okay, right? It's, of course, with the masks now, it's uh, become useless. But once we are now back to normalcy, it'll again be useful. So that's what is so tricky for the government because how do we set regulation uh, that is um, so specific because we cannot be just saying face recognition is bad through our, so for specific applications and what is the outcome, like how will wrong decisions be handled and who would be responsible for this? Uh, because liability is also an important aspect, right? So uh, I think setting this, I, only the government can probably do. So, uh, so I would imagine the starting points are clearly safety critical applications, you know, autonomous driving, uh, healthcare, right? Uh, anything to do with crime and law enforcement and surveillance, right? Anything to do with privacy of the citizens. Uh, so those are coming into center stage now. And over the time, we'll see it expand to other settings as well. You mentioned evolution. And there, there are so many things I want to pick out from this last answer. But I'm going to focus on evolution for a second. Because one of the things that you've also noted in your writings and talks is that the next generation of AI may bring some evolutions, and it will in particular bring a lot more fusion between mind and body, in air quotes. So uh, intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence as it exists in software, um, and then actual hardware of robotics who can move through the world and um, be coupled with that uh, software intelligence. I am curious just to hear a little bit of your views on what new ethical and um, governance challenges that evolution will bring with it and how we ought to start thinking about that now so that we're better prepared for it than we were for, say, the facial recognition issue when that came to light. Yeah, I think that's a great question, uh, especially, you know, embodied AI can revolutionize so many industries, right? So. Uh, so far, you know, we've seen a lot of exciting robots like the Boston Dynamics robot, you know, can do impressive actions, can dance, can do backflips, but it's all pre-programmed and precisely programmed to make those actions so it can't learn and adapt. So if we can bring that ability, you know, we can have, say, the Mars rover take more chances and do all kinds of exciting explorations on Mars or you know, be able to handle fires and all kinds of natural disasters. So lots of like instances where uh, having autonomy and the ability to make intelligent decisions on the fly can be uh, very powerful. So I think you know, if we are ultimately successful in uh, carrying out such challenging applications, it requires the design of next generation AI algorithms. Right. So I mentioned self-supervised learning earlier, like how humans uh, learn without supervision and how humans also learn through interaction. You see babies like trying to touch everything. You know, my nephew is always <laughs> tagging on my hair or trying to kind of, uh, you know, see how different objects uh, right? how they're able to hold it. So I think this aspect is also so important, the ability to just freely explore and interact with the world. But that's not how most of machine learning is done today because we have a fixed data set, it's collected, you learn on that. Uh, so in many ways, uh, if we have to solve these more challenging problems, 
Uh, we need to do away with supervision. We need to be able to handle interactive learning. Uh, we need to be able to handle domain shifts, right? So, you know, we can try to create the Mars environment, but it's not going to be the same as in Mars, right? So you can try to, in the lab, have the robot walk um, around and then you launch it in the real world. There's all kinds of rocks and pebbles and barriers. Uh, so you can't perfectly create this in the lab. And so that means we have to have robust algorithms that can work in all kinds of scenarios. So if we are able to successfully do this, that means we've solved a lot of um, issues that lead to bias uh, in our current AI models, because current AI models are based on supervised learning and label data. And if you only have label data for particular dominant classes and not the others, right, that's when you create bias. Um, and the current models uh, cannot handle domain shifts. You know, if they are not learning enough on the minority classes, then they're performing poorly at test time. Uh, so if on, whereas in these applications, you cannot afford to do this. Uh, so in that sense, the advances we have for the algorithmic research to enable this will also enable better ethical AI uh, that can handle bias, that can handle, um, you know, that can handle learning on bias data, that can uh, handle domain shifts. Uh, so I think that's an interesting aspect, right? But, you know, that doesn't mean every company launching an embodied AI or, you know, an intelligent robot uh, will be done correctly because, again, you can uh, create those that can be pretty dangerous. Uh, and so that's where we need a lot of uh, regulations. You know, we still cannot have drones fly everywhere around freely, and that's for a reason, right? Uh, they can uh, drop anytime, and we still don't have enough uh, confidence on our ability to predict um, how they can handle all kinds of turbulence and wind conditions. Uh, but this is a research we're actively doing at Caltech. Uh, we both have a physical lab with uh, wind array, so where we can test the drones even at hurricane level speeds, uh, which is very exciting. You know, think of drones that can withstand hurricanes. Uh, and so I think those, and also in simulation, right? How we can model fluid turbulence better. Um, so thinking of, uh, right, careful testing like this to certify that this drone can handle very high wind speeds or all kinds of uh, unsafe conditions is one aspect of getting towards a safer uh, setting where you know you can launch them into the real world. Um, so I think right now it's still very much in the preliminary research stage, right? But uh, these challenges are so great in a way we are now forced to <laughs> do more uh, foundational and principled algorithms to solve them. And hopefully that'll create uh, also better ethical AI. So we'd like, to, we'd like to end with one question on our podcast for all of our guests, um, which is looking ahead. And um, uh, we, we call it the rose, the thorn, and the bud. And the rose is something that you are uh, really happy about, that you're very pleased that is happening in, in, in our domain of AI, ethical AI. The thorn is something that you are unhappy about, that concerns you or worries you, that you're seeing right now. And the bud is something that is out on the horizon um, that is exciting and may be really transformative in the future. So, uh, Anamon, rose, thorn, and bud. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot to think about. 
I think to me, overall, the future is rosy, right? I uh, tend to be an optimist. And so what we are seeing in terms of better uh, design of core AI algorithms themselves, you know, uh, being able to handle domain shifts, being able to handle unsupervised uh, learning, uh, being able to you know, look into robustness and these uh, zero-shot generalization properties. These, I think, uh, will also lead to uh, ethical uh, AI, you know, at least uh, removal of a lot of bias that creeps into these models. So that's the rosy side. Uh, we are, again, uh, back to going into fundamentals and going into creation of better algorithms that will uh, make an impact in the real world. I think the thorn is uh, still the power of big tech, right? So what we saw with the fallout uh, in Google uh, with the firing of Timnit Gebru, Meg Mitchell, and uh, uh, the handling of uh, any kind of activism uh, around uh, the use of uh, ethical AI and uh, self-policing seems really difficult <laughs> uh, because that is not aligned with the incentives. You know, I always tend to think it's much better to frame the right incentives for people to do the right thing. And so that's where I think we need to ask what is the right level of regulation to incentivize companies to do the right thing and to be transparent and to have independent testing bodies to ensure uh, that, uh, you know, we are uh, sticking to our principles of fairness and uh, removal of bias. Yeah, and the but is this whole area of testing, right? AI testing as a field, you know, we have uh, flight testing engineers, right? Who do that for a living. I think uh, we'll soon have uh, uh, AI ethicists and uh, AI testing engineers uh, who, you know, really are treated as an integral part of the process rather than a separate entity. I mean, they're already there in companies, but I think their role uh, will get even more important and uh, be part of the initial design process rather than something that's done at the very end. Fantastic. Well, Anima, thank you so much for, for being with us and for these incredibly thoughtful answers. You've given us a lot to think about. And um, I really am excited to keep tracking all of this amazing work that you're doing and to see where it all goes. So thank you again for being with us and um, uh, we'll hope to connect again soon. Thanks a lot, Mark and Miriam. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, best wishes on all the amazing work you guys are doing. Thank you, Anima. Well, Mark, Anima certainly does not disappoint. No, what an incredible conversation. I really enjoyed that and, and feel like I learned quite a lot, um, both about AI itself and where it's come from and where it's going, and also the challenges that we face in making it socially responsible, ethical, and um, inclusive and fair. I agree. She covered so much between the challenges in industry, academia, the need for government regulation, uh, the challenges we're going to see as we address bias and underserved populations. What were some of the main takeaways for you, Mark? I thought that it, it was really good to hear Anima talk about the respective roles of academia and industry. This is something that I think we know intuitively is important, that there has to be a role for uh, teachers and computer science professors and departments in laying the foundations for future engineers to 
uh, approach their work with an ethical, critical, responsible perspective. And I just thought Anima's comments on that were, were really thoughtful and also looking at what the relative strengths are of uh, academia versus industry, both in terms of AI development itself and also ethical AI and responsible use of AI. And I think that's a, a big conversation that isn't being had enough. And I think it was great to, to, to start it today. How about you? Anything, anything jump out for you? I think it was interesting to watch the evolution where she talked about from the get-go when she was building cloud computing at Amazon Web Services, how it was happening so fast, it was almost hard to imagine the application, let alone the downfalls and the constant refrain we like to think about for whom it may fail. Uh, so it's it understandable in that context how it was hard to imagine uh, for where and for whom it would fail. Uh, it was interesting and helpful to hear her uh, really pay homage to the Black researchers who have demonstrated some of the failings in our current AI understanding and really translating for the general population, as well as experts, how problems in data sets are becoming societal problems uh, and, and the revolutionary work that has really helped open all of our eyes to some of the hazards. Uh, and, and to hear her end on an optimistic note that she really does think that uh, she has the means, the ways, the, the processes to help create better AI as we proceed. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I, I thought it was interesting, this comment you just made about how problems in data sets become societal problems, because of course, often they start as societal problems and then they become problems in data sets. For example, over-policing of uh, Black communities, which leads to higher statistics for crime rates in those communities, uh, which then is used to make the case for doing even more uh, policing. For example, just one example of many of how these things end up um, having a sort of positive feedback where they reinforce one another um, and uh, lead to progressively worse outcomes. And so that really, to me, just underscored why we need to get it right, why we need to get it right early and often and keep our eye on it and not um, let these systems get ahead of our ability to, to make sure that they're working with us and for us rather than against us as a society. And not to minimize the harms of human bias, we understand that that is an ongoing problem, but knowing that as we embed that problem into AI, we are scaling it and masking it behind a black box that very few people can understand uh, unless they're asking questions, unless we're teaching them through school, through general education, uh, how to identify these risks. And as we generally say, avoid the problem of undoing huge gains we've made in society uh, through lines of code. Absolutely. Well, that's a great note to end on, Miriam. So thanks for another great episode and see you soon. Thank you, Mark. Great episode. Talk to you soon. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 